You're listening to Radioactive 90.4 MHz. Get active. Dear listeners, you're hearing to Radioactive 90.4 MHz, Bangalore's first community radio station. You're now listening to Arjya Purva. As every week, you're hearing to Manacharche program. In this program, we're going to listen about the third national online conference, MECON 2020, on the topic suicide prevention. its current challenges and innovations organized by nimhans department of mental health education in this conference we had various highly resourceful professionals come together using the virtual platform adhering to the current covid-19 pandemic and shared about various ways to prevent suicides so now we're going to listen to the symposium session 3 which is on the topic understanding suicidality and support for suicide bereavement to tell us more about it We have with us Dr. Purnima Bola, Additional Professor, Department Clinical Psychology, Nimhans, who would talk about emotions and non-suicidal self-injury. Dear listeners, let's hear from her. Close to my heart, in a sense, uh, both because of my clinical and research interests, and that is non-suicidal self-injury uh, and its intersections with emotions. Now, the reason we are speaking about non-suicidal self-injury in in our program. is very much within the spectrum of suicidality and i'll first give you a little bit of background about it and then talk about some of the research work which is related to the intersections with emotions i think that if you look at the media uh, reports uh, in the last few years there are very frequent reports on self harming behaviors young people who are injuring themselves by cutting or burning or uh, behaviors that injure their skin in some way uh, cause damage but are not necessarily with any conscious suicidal uh, intent however you would all agree this is not really a behavior that can be brushed under the carpet and we need to know much more uh, about this uh, so i'll just take you through some of what we know about uh, non suicidal self injury so how many people i mean how much do we need to be concerned about this behavior and you would find that Uh, across the world international research has shown fairly significant percentages of uh, adolescents and young adults so typically you know uh, school high school and college uh, youth are typically the most vulnerable segment and we have a series of uh, indian research that has been done in the community uh, samples and here to be find fairly high and worrying rates of non suicidal self injury Uh, who who engages in this behavior? I think uh, in literature there's often a sense that maybe there's a gender divide and it's uh, girls or women who engage in this behavior more. But most recently, uh, the consensus is that there may not be such a significant difference that both girls, women, and boys and men uh, do engage in various types of self-injuring behavior. What is this behavior? Uh, most frequent is cutting the skin. but also carving puncturing the skin in some way scratching burning uh, pulling out hair hitting self so there's a whole range of uh, very problematic and difficult behaviors which means that the, the the person is causing harm to themselves uh, there are number of locations but typically hands wrist stomach thighs these are the the more common locations and when does it start would be probably uh, some of us are surprised to know that it starts quite young uh, 12 to 15 years typically around 14 years or so is where you find most people report having begun this behavior and they come and go but 
start later on in life in emerging adulthood or in the college years as well. And perhaps the most perplexing question is why do people engage in this behavior which damages themselves, which causes pain to themselves? And I, I think that's what um, some of today's presentation will be about. Um, just to set the tone for this presentation, clearly there are huge gaps in health seeking, in treatment, uh, the knowledge that we have and what we provide, and a lot of gaps in our knowledge and understanding of this problematic behavior as well. So if you see the little diagram here, at the tip of the iceberg you find suicide. So that's a smaller segment that actually might have significant suicidal intent and engage in suicidal behaviors. But you have a much larger number of people who engage in self-harm and only a small segment of them present to clinical services. So that means in the community you're going to have a lot of people harming themselves and this tends to be then a very hidden sort of uh, behavior that doesn't receive the help and attention that it deserves. As I said before, the most perplexing question for most of us, whether it's clinicians or parents or teachers or anyone in the community, that why do people engage in this self-injury and why don't they stop doing it? Uh, so there are a lot of different impressions and lots of myths and misconceptions as well. Quite often you hear people saying that it's very attention-seeking behavior. It's simply like a manipulative act. And uh, so this means that there is less uh, a positive uh, response and outreach to people who may be self-harming. Uh, so they may be angry or those kind of responses that you find uh, more often. Uh, some people equate it often with an act of suicide. So for them, non-suicide is self-injury and suicide are the same. And here is where I think we really need to make that distinction. While people who engage in cutting, for example, are at much higher risk later on in their lives to perhaps make a suicide uh, attempt or have suicidal intent, the two behaviors are quite different. People who sense injury will typically say, I'm not doing it to... Uh, with an intention to kill myself. In fact, some of them may say that it is a protection for me. This helps, prevents me from actually taking that step because it serves certain functions uh, for me. And of course, among the, help, the helping community of mental health professionals, there is sometimes a myth that this is an indication of a severe sort of personality vulnerability or difficulty or some other psychiatric condition, which is also not always the case. There are many people who engage in self-injury who may not have a diagnosable psychiatric disorder at all. Okay, so, so beginning with some of these clarifications, um, I'm going to share some of my research to really um, sort of uh, exemplify uh, what I'm talking about. Um, so we did a survey of um, 152 teachers across various schools and colleges um, in, in India. And we found that not only are there knowledge gaps, there are also empathy gaps. So uh, uh, teachers typically did not know much about the facts about student self-injury. They underestimated the rates uh, in the country. And um, what was more problematic is that they saw this as clearly uh, uh, quite often attention-seeking. And they have had a lot of negative or difficult emotional reactions. So sometimes it was shock. Sometimes it was sadness, sometimes it was anger, and they found it quite difficult to reach out to someone who's self-injuring and felt that this is something that counselors need to handle and they are simply not available in the numbers that we need in our educational institutions. So when I'm talking today about 
uh, non-suicidal self-injury and emotions, I'm also talking about the emotions of people who see someone self-injuring. So it's really a topic that uh, brings about a lot of difficult uh, and problematic emotions in us. Having said that, um, I think consistently wherever the research is done, uh, we have one finding that really clearly stands out, that there is a problem in uh, sort of dealing with emotions, in recognizing emotions, in managing emotions, in regulating emotions um, among people who self-injure. So it, it's a clear vulnerability and a pathway to non-suicidal self-injury. Now, while I won't go into the details, there are three, four key models in this in the literature that you'll find um, that talk about this intersection. One is a functional model that says that, look, to understand the, the, the role of emotions, one has to realize that people who engage in self-injury, they say that they do it to manage difficult emotions. So sometimes it may be that the emotions are very intense and the injury, injuring act itself helps them to bring down or release some difficult emotions. At other times, it serves a function to help them feel something. So they are perhaps feeling very blocked or feeling very numb and it helps to generate some sort of emotion by engaging in self-injury. Another model talks about how um, individuals with difficulties may engage in a lot of rumination and so there's a build-up of emotions that they find difficult to deal with and so there's an emotional cascade which eventually ends up in them self-injury. And finally, the, uh, uh, another model talks about the fact that um, people who engage in uh, self-injury uh, may think of emotions as very threatening, as very difficult to deal with. So they push it away and they engage in a lot of avoidance of emotions. Ultimately, that it does not help them to cope. And so, once again, they may opt for self-injuring behavior as a way to deal with all that those pent up and difficult to understand and avoided emotions. So this is all of course in, uh, you know, bits and pieces from theoretical models and some research in, in uh, international settings. But more recently, I think uh, I'm going to share the results of a cluster of studies that we've done here uh, at Nimhans uh, on suicidal self-injury to understand this behavior in our country. So I'll share uh, uh, some aspects from a qualitative study that was actually done with self-injuring adolescents and young adults, which asked them to share their journeys of recovery, their experience of self-injury, what they felt was a barrier for them to stop, what they felt helped them. And I'm just picking out a few things. Most of them spoke about the fact that they engaged in this behavior to manage their emotions. So it really connected with the models that we find in the literature. They spoke about uh, catharsis, of letting out emotions, of being able to reduce their distress. They also spoke about this act as a, as a way, as a, as a communication or an expression of very difficult emotions like anger, hatred, disgust with self, or a lot of guilty feelings. So almost this was like a self-punishment uh, that they engaged in. And finally, a few of them also spoke about it as a protective sort of mechanism against uh, suicide, as we have found. Uh, so I'm just sharing a couple of quotes uh, on this page. So one of them said, before doing this, I was feeling numb. 
Uh, another person spoke about the fact that this was a way of expressing emotional pain. And actually, the physical pain was hardly experienced at all. It was very distant, like a biology textbook kind of thing is what the person said. Um, another person very clearly said that it's, it's a matter of asserting some control. My body, my rules. Uh, and uh, some other people talked about the calming and other effects of self-injury. So here we can clearly see that self-injury has some meaning for a person. It is helping them uh, navigate a very difficult emotional uh, world. In some of the other studies, what we found is that uh, this, these, of course, are narratives what I shared with you, but even on certain questionnaire-based uh, uh, assessment frameworks, they reported that feeling relaxed, stopping bad feelings, punishing self, these were some of the very common reasons that they reported. And clearly, when you compare people who self, young people who self-injure and those who don't, uh, you find emotion dysregulation much more prominent among these vulnerable youth. Um, We've also done some research, and I'll share with you on the next slide, a fairly complicated-looking model, but it really indicates that emotion regulation, it's a key predictor of self-injury behavior, and particularly within this framework, people who find it difficult to control their impulses, so a sense of emotional discontrol is another important predictor. So don't go into the details of this model, but the key thing what I would like to say is that in this large study, what we found is emotion dysregulation was only the only direct predictor of non-suicidal self-injury. So everything is coming together to tell us this is something we need to assess and this is something we need to intervene with. And I think all research is only useful if it helps you to help somebody, if you can translate it into your clinical or intervention uh, frameworks. So I think what this work really uh, suggests is that when you see someone with self-injury, you need to have a very individualized assessment of what functions it serves, what difficult emotions it helps them to deal with, uh, what are the different, different vulnerabilities. And so with these risk profiles, we can do a much more targeted uh, intervention. And also to understand what are the contexts in which these difficult emotions have arisen. Do they have family dysfunction? Do they have a history of trauma? So to get a context of that would be critical in the assessment phase itself. Okay, so, not, so one self-injurer is not the same as the other. They may, may have very unique profiles in the way that they handle their emotions. And uh, also I think this means that if we understand why people are self-injuring, perhaps we have more empathy and we have more sensitive responses uh, to someone like this. And our intervention frameworks will also focus on teaching them how to manage their emotions in difficult situations. And also to recognize that the journey of recovery is not going to be easy. Uh, since this is something that is helping them, they're going to be quite ambivalent about stopping. And so um, that needs to be kept in mind. I'm just going to be end, uh, end by sharing that, you know, this is a mental health education conference. So I think I wanted to highlight that even in non-suicidal self-injury and uh, aspects related to uh, emotions, what is the work that we've done? So I think we've conducted a, over the last, uh, you know, five, six years, a number of workshop series for different stakeholders. Uh, done a lot of consultations in educational institutions so they can recognize and respond uh, effectively. Prepared a lot of uh, uh, information material that can be shared with different uh, groups. 
Uh, so sometimes posters, brochures, uh, different things that can be uh, put up to uh, clarify some of the myths and to help people understand this behavior. And finally, I'll just end with the experiences of the media. I thought I'll speak about this a little bit because I think even in the morning, uh, media-related issues were highlighted. Uh, I remember some years ago, a reporter came to uh, uh, interview me about non-suicide and self-injury. And um, uh, uh, I, I told her that we have to be quite cautious that even in this, there are no um, very graphic photos of people having cut themselves or um, insensitive portrayals of non-suicide and self-injury. And the reporter told me, look, that's not really on my control. Someone else decides the picture that has to be put. So the only way I can stop this is if you let me put your photo in the thing. So I will give this photo and then, uh, you know, that's how we will put it across. So I think engaging with the media was uh, really something for me to understand that reporting on sensitive topics, both suicide and non-suicide self-injury, is perhaps something we need to work very strongly with. So we can partner together, make the message count, and help people understand how uh, emotions and difficulties in the area of emotions very closely connected with non-suicide self-injury. So thank you all of you for uh, listening to this. I hope we have some time for questions later. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Purnima. Uh, uh, we have a question from Puni. He's asking, from the Purnima ma'am, how and uh, what can be the empathetic first responses when parents, teachers, or viewers find self-injury in someone? Uh, as I think it may be highly impactful on the individual. I think you're absolutely right that the first response can be very critical. Um, so I think um, perhaps more than what to do, I think we need to caution ourselves what not to do. So not to make assumptions that we have understood why the person engages in this behavior, not to tell the person to stop immediately, uh, either by um, sort of inducing guilt. Quite often we may say things like, what will your parents think? Or, you know, so in that sense, it's quite similar to the responses you would give for someone who's suicidal. Um, so the idea is to provide a space, a, a listening ear, uh, a chance for the person to describe uh, how this behavior began, what is what are the contexts and what are the reasons that they may be engaging this in this behavior and not stepping in with any judgment or very quick advice or solution. You know, research has shown is that shown us that the recovery journey is typically quite prolonged and up and down. So I think if we're going to give an empathetic first response, we also need to be ready that it's going to be a slightly longer journey. So not to have the pressure that just as one conversation should have the maximum impact and uh, you know get the person to stop immediately. Just for the person to find a sta safe space, uh, someone who's non-judgmental, that would be the key uh, aspect. Uh, so of course we can keep talking about this, but the immediate few points would be what I've shared just now. Thank you, Dr. I would like to thank Dr. Punima for sharing with us about emotions and non-suicidal and self-injury. Dear listeners, I hope this was a very beneficial talk to all of you. If you want to share your views and feedback on this program, you can contact us on 223 or mail us at radioactivecr90.4mhz at gmail.com. If you have missed the show or want to hear it over again, you can hear it on www.soundcloud.com. If you want to listen to all our programs, you can download the Radioactive app. 
keep listening to radioactive 90.4 mhz bangalore's first community radio station get active this is me arjya purva signing out